all of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. Welcome back to the second half of our program today on the Rosicrucians. As a relevant backdrop to our other shows in this series. And with us, we have a world-renowned scholar on esoterics, Tobias Churton. Hello. To give us the academic input on this topic. Now, you told us, Tobias, your thoughts about the emergence of the RC impulse. But I'd also like us to explore the ramifications onto other similar hermetic and Gnostic currents. Okay. So let's take on another aspect of this. I'll give you a little reasoning, if you can indulge me, and then I want you to take on that. Okay. If you look at uh, attempts to track the history uh, of the Rosicrucians prior to the Manifestos, maybe maybe motivated by the, the, the notion that there was some kind of brotherhood, uh, maybe motivated by the fundamentalists who took the pharma literally, but you can't get away from the fact that it describes a Christian person going to the Islamic world. Yes. And the interesting thing with the concept of the Rosicross is that in the study of symbolism, you're very hard-pressed to find any combination of the cross and the rose. You can find combinations of the sacred blossom and the rose, uh, and the cross. But the few examples I've seen, one of them was in Arkunda Raoul's book. That's a pseudonym for the Afghani scholar and Sufi Idris Shah. Mm. He wrote a book on uh, occult groups where he argued that there was a Sufi group who call themselves Rosicrucians back in the medieval ages. And you, I also read an article of Sar Hieronymus. His real name was Emil Dantin, who was a, a leader of one of these neo-Rosicrucian groups. He, even though he was a Catholic himself, he wrote a very interesting article called The Islamic Roots of the RC. Now, my question to you then is, would you concede that there are any similarities or any relationship, yes. either either historical or at least in idea, yes, between yes. the Rosicrucian impulse and yes, Sufi yes. groups? Yes. Yep. Yes. Let's hear it. Yeah. Um, one of Andre's best friends was uh, was Christoph Besolt, mm-hmm. and uh, also another of his colleagues at Tübingen was Wilhelm Schickard, and they were both Orientalists. Ah. And uh, made very serious studies of what they called Saracen groups, unusual sects. The sects of the Saracens was a work, I think by Bezold, it may have been Schickard, but I think it was Bezold. And he made a study of Saracen groups, and Andre clearly had read this. And there is no doubt that Andre is making a satirical point that a man in search of truth at the time of the Great Schism, when the story of uh, C.R., he leaves his boring Western monastery and goes to Damar in Arabia, not Damkar, as it was mistakenly written, Damar in Arabia. You could have written a second farmer where another brother C.R. doesn't go to Damar, but goes to uh, Paris or somewhere or London and finds the same thing there. It it was only Andre's concept, which he, you know, he, he says at one point in one of his 
non-Rosicrucian writings, he says, uh, the people of the Antipodes, he didn't even know what they were. Then no one had visited Australia or Hawaii or whatever. He said, uh, will be thought to be the wisest people and the Westerner will be made stupid. He says that point. It's fascinating. Very ahead. He says, they will be laughing at us. Yeah, and these people hadn't even been discovered. No, it's, it's, so he, he only he took Rosenkreutz to Damar to shock the Christian bigots who thought they had it all. Damar is actually in the Arabian desert. It's it's right in what is now that dreadful thing called Saudi Arabia. Mm. It was misprinted as Damkar because somebody misread the Ortelius map. Right. Where if you look carefully the way the letters are, are written, it looks like it could be Damar or Damkar, and, and the, it was taken as Damkar. Yeah, because he gives other real geographical places, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. And it, I, I was shown this by Carlos Gilly in Basel University Library. He got the original map out and showed me. He said, look at that. He said, what does that say? I said, well, it could be Damkar or it could be Damar. He said, but the place was always Damar. Mm. I only say that because in the English translation, which is the basis for most of the translations, Thomas Vaughan, who translated it, although I don't think it was, I think John Hall translated it because he was the German scholar. Uh, John Hall would have seen Damkar and immediately thought it must mean Damascus. So in many of the translations, it says Damasco. But actually, Andrei had got the name. This is another proof of why Andrei wrote it. Because it was only Andre who had two major Orientalist friends, Schickart and Besolt, both knew that Damar was a university of Islam based in the desert in Arabia. That was not common. He's really saying, well, the job of Gnostic teaching is to, is to open people's inner mind. And you will find more of these groups in the East than you will find in a European university. This is a major satirical goal, if you, if you think of football. It's a score. He scores with this idea. It's a brilliant idea. So he has, to, in order to find the wisdom, he's got to go to the East. He's actually almost becoming a heretic, but he's not. What is he bringing back is knowledge. But of course, when he comes back via Fez from Damar, no, he's like Marco Polo, you know, I've been to China. Oh, really? Where's that? I don't believe it. <laughs> Nobody believes it. No. <laughs> And it's a wonderful joke, profound joke. Mm. CR comes back with the greatest wisdom. And even though he's brought it from far away, he is invisible because the world will, the Western world will not see him. Mm. And of course, this is St. John's Gospel. He was in the world, but the world knew him not. And so Christian Rosenkreuz at this point becomes a Christos figure. He's a Christ. He becomes a living Christ in the world. Do not take that literally. It's a symbol. He's become what a Christian is supposed to be, a person whose root is in heaven, but placed in this world. And what Andre is saying is there are, of course, he was saying he knew that there were people in the East who were called Muslims. Mm -hmm. uh, but the fact is they had more grasp of universal truth than the clever, clever Lutheran loudmouthed bigots who were calling for people to be burnt in the universities of Germany 
and the Protestant states, and of course the Catholic states. He knew that perfectly well enough. The point was, he said, who will Christ recognize as his own in the flames? And he says this in his other books, which nobody ever reads, like Christian mythologies. He will recognize the heretics. He will recognize those the world doesn't see in the flames of their burning. And that is why the uh, the true fraternity, Fraternitas Christi, he wrote a book making explicit its cause. It's addressed to the Fraternitas Christi, the Fraternitas of Christ. This is what it's about. Now, he obviously understood that the Rosicrucian idea is, of course, older than his writing about it. All he's describing is the spiritual fraternity. Gottfried Arnold, in, 19, in 1700, with his Impartial History of Heretics and Churches, published in Frankfurt, 1700, recognized this. And he, he recognized immediately, Abraham von Frankenberg also, that the Rosicrucian Brotherhood was a reincarnation of the idea of the Gnostic Valentinus, the Cathars, Giordano Bruno, all these people who've touched the highest wisdom. That's what it is, and that's that's the compulsion today, because this this wisdom is coming from uh, the highest spiritual level. Mm. You don't have to prove this by saying there was a group of people in Florence, there was a group of people in Turin, or there was a group of people. The Rosicrucian story is simply one way of expressing the, univer the universal truth. The true godly people have never been absent from the world, though they are not seen by the world. Mm. You try and go on television today in Britain <laughs> and talk about the things we're talking tonight, I, you won't get there. <laughs> no, you won't get no, there. No, you'll be burnt before. <laughs> this, the, 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 the Rosicrucian message is as invisible in its so-called Great Britain today as it was in the 17th century. Mm. They don't want to know why, because it doesn't tell you how you can make a million pounds out of a barrel of horse shit. If it did, believe me, we would hear nothing else but this brotherhood. Oh, maybe that's... Although you may argue that that secret would be kept very secret again, so you, <laughs> you may be losing there as well. But the fact, this is what we are talking, we are talking about spiritual truth. Spiritual truth is not a commodity that states and capital are interested in. And it's exactly the same today as it was in the 17th century. The difference in the early 17th century, there was this apocalyptic hope that somehow the skies were going to open and this divine knowledge would come to all men. It would be, it would be appreciated. Oh, that's no difference. No, no, people believe that today too, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but not. We're not talking. Yeah, they're not expecting wisdom from the skies. Oh well, uh, the UFOs. You're talking about fundamentalist. You're talking about uh, the pseudo apocalypse of the materialists. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, they, the brethren from space will give us all that, yeah. etc. So. Well, that's materialistic. Yeah, it is. You know, it's like Seventh Day Adventist and something. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah. Jesus is going to fly through outer space. Yeah, all this. It's not what we're talking about. No. I don't know how many people listening will understand that concept. Some will, some will. Oh, you'd be surprised. We have a very bright uh, listenership. Can you look into their hearts, Al? <laughs> <laughs> well, they do give me feedback. And I think I think their hearts are, are coming through in some of it. But, but never mind. If only one person listening to this, notwithstanding myself, can get something good out of it, <laughs> I think we're mission accomplished. Yeah. But when we talk about about the Sufis, do you concede then that there was Gnostic impulses 
carried through among some Sufi sects that these guys may have recognized. Yes. Okay. Absolutely no question about it in my mind. I don't think that Andrei would have been happy with the word Gnostic because if he was familiar, which I'm sure he was, with uh, Irenaeus, Hippolytus, Tertullian, and the Patristic Fathers, I'm sure he would have been uneasy about the word Gnostic, but I suspect he had a place in his mind that recognized that there was more to it than the patristic enemies of the Gnosis Mm. uh, uh, had to say. There is no doubt that Sufism is the Gnosis of Islam. There's there's just no question in their own thoughts, etc. And it is why they're not appreciated. Yeah. You know, they're, they're bullied. Uh, Sufis are bullied in, in the East. Bullied, they're killed. Uh, bullied. Not necessarily killed, not necessarily locked up, but just pushed around. You know, they're regarded as... Yeah, but many places, they, they are murdered, many places. And that too, yes. But that's uh, more recent, yeah, I yeah. think. But I mean, even even in Turkey 20 years ago, they could only dance yeah. the the, 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 the whirling dervishes, were only allowed to dance at certain times. Um, but that again, that was a secular rule, of course, not a religious one. Whereas today, in, you know, in Tehran, Sufis are, are uh, discouraged from public assembly. You know, that sort of thing. You've got that going on. Notwithstanding Wahhabism and Saudi Arabia and all that, it's terrible. Well, it's the absence of, you know, when people talk about, you know, Islam's a peaceful religion, you know, I sometimes think that they're talking about that part of it which has the least... Uh, contemporary terms, the least power of expression. But if you look historically at the origin of the Sufis as far as one can, they seem to emerge at precisely the time that the Sabian witness goes quiet in the ninth century. That seems to be the case. So there does, I think there's a historic uh, link with the um, Hermetic school of yeah. Mesopotamia, for sure. Mm. I do. And anyway, the, the the concept of the soul's battle with the heart is so close to it. In fact, it's almost a purification of some of the mythological crudities of the early Gnostics. You get that uh, Peter Kingsley, I, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he, he's made an interesting case for that these ideas you're talking about were seeded in the West by... Pythagoras and, and uh, yeah. Neoplatonists and Pythagoreans and all that. And it came from some kind of shamanism, I think, but that it was hijacked, but that it survived. He, he points to links between Pythagoreanism and Sufism mm. very early on. And uh, uh, his argument is both spiritually, like you actually, is both uh, at the historic level and at the spiritual level. Yes, I think, when, of course, when I'm using the word Christian... Uh, through this interview, mm-hmm. you know, I'm I'm almost foolishly hoping that the, the word means more to the listeners than sort of what you were taught at Sunday school. The label, yeah. Yeah. When I think of Christian, I, I am thinking of, of a high intellectual tradition which has taken in Neoplatonism, Hermeticism, mm. and uh, the, the, reli- the spiritual philosophies of the late antique period as well as the the prophetic insight of the Hebraic tradition. So I'm thinking of Christianity not as some group or what your pastor told you, I'm thinking of the whole whole movement of spiritual aspiration, which regards, you know, which centers on the human being 
the importance of Jesus is that he is the humanation of God. If you, in other words, we can speculate about God, but we have to deal with human beings, and the figure of Jesus gives us ideas about how to do that. Otherwise, we're in the position as religious people of simply worshipping imaginary deities. Uh, unless we can feel and see and touch uh, the divine, we are uh, wallowing in, in, in dogmatic ignorance. And so, as Jesus said, you know, if you have done this to the least of my brethren, you have done it to me. Mm -hmm. It is how we treat one another which dictates and exemplifies our knowledge of God. It is not about what we think. That saying, you can find that in the Quran too, where uh, God says that uh, what you do to any human being, you do to me. Yeah, well, that's the golden. Yes, that's the golden rule, isn't yeah. it? You know, do unto others as you have them do unto you. Yes, mm. um, but of course, in uh, Islamic culture, the making of human images is, you know, uh, regarded as suspect, and the whole notion that there is a profound unity between man and God. Is except in Sufism is uh, is regarded with suspicion. Man must get on his knees and literally submit to this huge power, this emperor of the uh, beyond the cosmos. You know, we should be. What is it? What is man that thou should be mindful of? Mm. Yeah, very vulnerable to be exploited. Yes, but the Christian, the, the what we call Christianity, and I, I again, I fear for the the meaning of these words. But they mean so stupid things today to people mm. the eruption of the the human and the spiritual into religion in the late uh, antique period and in, in the uh, roman augustan period this eruption of a new conception of religion that is humane and spiritual and given a mythic a mythic and cultic formula it was was a revolution whose profundity people uh, still don't understand the, the, the depth of it and the challenge of it and how it leads, leaves man in a far more difficult situation than the old pagans or even the old Jews had to deal with. We can't take refuge in nature mm. anymore. We are going to be dealing with new knowledge. New knowledge. And the Rosicrucian movement captures that moment again. It's almost like the rebirth of a Christianity in the 17th century, that we're going to have to deal, you know, greater things than these ye shall do. We're dealing now with, with this immense outpouring in the modern scientific period, which all the, the old religions are reacting against. This is why I said at the very beginning of our talk, it's about reactions. Science and knowledge and new knowledge causes tremors and reactions in religious people. Yeah. And the natural thing is, you know, the earthbound always see new knowledge as satanic. If it comes from the stars, it's Lucifer. Mm -hmm. you know? It's the light from above. They, 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 from the earthbound perspective, from the materialist perspective, all new knowledge has satanic because in a way, of course, all new knowledge is power, and power can always be used for good or evil. And experience tells us that generally we we'll, must be afraid because new knowledge will be used for bad. Yeah. And th this is the ambiguity of knowledge. Modern science doesn't understand this. 
it's still got this childlike, unenlightened view that knowledge is good. Well, <laughs> knowledge yeah. is knowledge. And, and you it's see, not necessarily good. It's no. not necessarily evil. It depends entirely on the spiritual predisposition of the user. Yeah. Look at Einstein's dilemma when he was confronted with the reality for the first time of the atomic bomb. And he doesn't know where to go. Who can he... He knows he's one of the authors of this terrible thing. Mm. Without him, like, it like probably... Like Dr. Frankenstein. Yeah, <laughs> I think it, it sort of hexed him. Yeah, it's an old dilemma. You know, and he says, God, God, <laughs> you can see, are we able to use this knowledge? Do you really know what you're doing? Well, of course, the state always knows best. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we got to do it. <laughs> we got to... Thanks for the knowledge, Albert, and we're still watching you because we know you're a communist at heart. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, here science suddenly, he's, he knew he was a prostitute. He had prostituted his knowledge and it was going, you know, he thought he were, by going to America to escape the Nazis, you know, he was on the right side. But he's faced with this, this awful sense that maybe it is not as simple as that. No, maybe the monster's still there. Yes, I think these questions are raised by the Rosicrucian phenomenon to a profound degree mm. because it is a forget the esoteric version of uh, Rosicrucianism. It's really it's a debate about knowledge and new knowledge and what it will mean. I think this is misdone. But you know, the problem today isn't, I think, so much the esoteric interpretation of it as it is the conspiratorial aspect. I mean, you'll find most people today, if they hear words like Masons and Rosicrucians, they immediately think of some sinister conspiracy. The poor Rosicrucians. Well, that's one of the reasons I've spent my life writing these, trying to do this stuff to, to try and stem the damage done by this, this tsunami of conspiracy nonsense which is truly is far more dangerous than we could have imagined you know many of the the murders that have taken place throughout the world not only in uh, with the with the the fundamentalists and so forth but also yeah. you know in america the claims of people to to special knowledge of what's going on this isn't a minor thing and i i I've always thought theologians should be engaged with this whole issue I wrote my books to say, well, look, I've got no axe to grind. I want to try. I, I like you want to know what the truth is, and I'm giving my best best efforts to find out what that is, because I think beyond the madness there is a sanity. Mm. Uh, we are in danger of being overwhelmed by the insanity. Mm. Uh, this week, has, this last two weeks have been. Horrendous for us because it's last two months, last two years. I mean, where where to begin? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All mm. of this. And you know, there is an. I wrote a novel about all this. Uh, oh, let's hear about the Yazidis. Really? Yes. Yes. What's it called? Uh, it's called the Babylon Gene. Mm. The Babylon Gene, and uh, it's totally set in the period of two thousand four, two thousand six, the Gulf. The new, the, you know, the, the new war against Saddam, post uh, 9/11, and the 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 attempt to annihilate the Yazidis. Yeah. Oh my God. Which we now, which I predicted in the book exactly. Wow. I'm sorry to say, when I wrote it in 2005, it was published. Uh, what is it now? Three years ago, and um, it sold moderately. 
has had some nice reviews and all that. And it's it's it's, it's my uh, somebody said show Dan Brown what it's really all about. That <laughs> <laughs> was a friend said. So I wrote the Babylon Gene. Okay. Um, but yeah, that was. That's really to show how all these things matter. The hero of it is an advisor to the British intelligence, and it's about how conspiracy stories and mythology about Freemasonry, Jews, and all that stuff is going to be used by uh, insane terrorists or manipulative forces. Well, it doesn't help that the Rosicrucians style themselves as invisible and among you know everyone for completely different reasons well when you reflect on this conversation later al you you might get a another idea of that as well oh yeah no no i don't have that idea but i'm saying these things are taken buzzwords are taken they know maybe one you're not expecting (laughs) oh well maybe we'll see but uh, no, I think that um, you're onto something here because, uh, and by the way, the Yazidi, just for those who don't know, uh, is this uh, fire worshipping uh, tradition. It is one of the. It is one of the two. Well, I think there are basic. Okay, when we talk about Gnostics or the Gnostic movement of the mm-hmm. second, third century, yep. there are only two authentic movements who show a, a direct link to the period. In my in my judgment, mm-hmm. directly, okay. and that one is the Mandeans of Iraq, and then the Yazidis, and their testimony historically is phenomenal. It's extraordinary. They are the, they have been persecuted hideously, yeah. you know, since a thousand years, now. and still are. Yeah, and uh, very few people know about it, which worries me. You know, why don't people know about this sort of thing? Why don't they know? Why don't we? Why aren't we told? But they—they they are the inheritors of Zarathustra, right? Zoroaster. There are no there are Zoroastrian elements in the in the faith of the Yazidis, but it's an oral tradition, which I think is one of its great strengths. It's an oral tradition, and there's no dogma. Hmm. Anyway, I give an account of them in in that particular novel. It was the point of writing the novel for me was to be able to write about the Yazidis, right. with the in, intense admiration I feel for for their tradition, which again has uh, been travested by the the ignorance as, as always. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting that uh, gnosis is a common source for many other traditions that has branches of gnosis if you like that has spread to different corners of the world like like influence on Yazidi Sufism hmm. but Rosicrucianism is also a child of it and uh, you mentioned in part one Tantra so um, it's not inconceivable yeah. that this, this gives credence actually to Levanda's claim uh, his book The Tantric Alchemist uh, it's about Thomas Vaughan and his relationship to the Indian Tantric tradition and I was thinking how far-fetched that a guy back then would be that intimate, uh, familiar with Tantra. But from our conversation now, how Tantra really is Gnosis, uh, it seems that this actually can be real then. Because what, you probably haven't read the book, it's so new, but it's, Levanda has worked with it since 1968, I think, and he's now finally published it. And he, I haven't read it yet, but he claims that he's putting up the key where you can read page by page. Sounds fantastic. Sounds brilliant. Sounds like it chimes in with my book. Uh, 
the last chapter of my new sex book is about Thomas Vaughan and Glass Ashwell. Right. And really? Yeah. Well, in Vaughan's introduction to the farmer, he talks about the Brahmins of a monastic, and uh, while it's not really a monastery, it's, it's a fortress on the River Beast, which is a Himalayan river. And uh, he compares it to some writings by Roger Bacon. Anyway, I refer to this in the book and mm. also in the Gurdjieff book. Mm. So that's the, I think, yes, he knew about the Brahmins. So if he knew about the Brahmins, he, he probably knew about this other stuff as well. Yeah. So then it's no coincidence. Maybe not. I'd love to read this book, though. It sounds fantastic. Because, mm. because Marvel and Blake are both aware that there is a kind of explosive spiritual sexual doctrine mm. at work under this tradition. But have you read Thomas Vaughan? Well, I've read I've read Lumen de Luminae, and I've I've read Vaughan's introduction to the farmer. What, okay. what else should I read? I don't know. I'm not familiar with his bibliography, but uh, well, he, you know, there's not much of Thomas Vaughan. I mean, his brother Henry wrote all this marvelous poetry. But but according to Levanda, I think his wife was uh, as important here. But here, here's the thing: he put he yeah, I remember now. He said because we haven't had the show yet. He just mentioned it to me like we're talking now, right? And uh, he, yeah, he said that uh, there's the only painting or picture that Vaughan gives is a comprised because b- before there wasn't translations of the Chinese and Indian text to uh, the West. It's just happened now the last ten, twenty years, and now it's accessible. So he he shows how point for point, if you're given the key, this supposedly alchemical work is actually a. Uh, Tantric work, but it makes so much sense now because it's if if tantra is a part of the gnostic tradition, then it's just the it's just the snake biting its own tail. It's just it's coming home again in Thomas Vaughan. He's combining alchemy and tantra, uh, which actually are related then mm. by ideas. <clears throat> yeah, well, I don't see any problem with that intrinsically. No. But for, as a proof, it's phenomenal. It's new. Yeah. Well, for me, it's it's a mind yeah. blower. Well, they didn't invent sex in the 20th century, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> really? People do. I mean, this is amazing. How did they populate the planet? You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, ac- according to the Christians, uh, that would be impossible. <laughs> not, not true, old boy. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. Sex, no sex. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> Christians too. Yeah. Oh, are using the word Christians now mainstream? That's also interesting that you're trying to reclaim the the concept of Christianity. I like that. Well, I'd love to. You know, it'd be a huge delight. Mm. I, I don't. I think it's all we've got. <laughs> I really, yeah. if you understand, understand it in the broadest uh, and deepest sense, mm. there ain't nothing else out there. Uh, I've looked into every alternative, and uh, there isn't. There's no. There's no. Not that's creative. You see, it's, it's like uh, there are just sort of sort of abortive versions. You know, they, but they don't have the whole thing. Now, I'm not saying that you go to a church and you'll find the whole thing, but there's no doubt to my mind that the creation of humanity, when we talk about humanity as a, as a rounded lovely, beautiful individual is not the product of a philosophy. 
it's not the product of science it's the product of a spiritual cultivation mm. from the deepest senses of what we really are as people and only in the heart of the heart of the christian tradition do you get this fullness now we know of course that this has been perverted by nuns monks <laughs> theologians churches yeah. states and all the rest of it mm. but but you know something is still there that comes through that activates ourselves look at the difference in the type of mind and what each creates now i regard christianity as a very ancient insight far far older than the first century mm. older than jesus i i'm with i i really believe that the, the clement was quite right that it, it does go back to adam meaning to the origins of our not mind mm. it is the highest knowledge we can call it christianity but it or call it what we like but it, there it is and it's it's a humane wholeness which we have lost yeah and none of the other religions none of them have it and i would have thought the, the current fixation on islam which is as it was it hilaire belloc said it was a heresy of christianity which i genuinely believe that is the case it was began as a heresy of christianity meaning a deviation I think there was a German scholar a few years ago I remember he studied the earliest documents connected with the Quran and said the original documents were Christian. Mm. They were apocryphal Christian. Mm. They weren't mainstream, they were unsophisticated. It is a sect and its behavior historically has been that of a sect. Sects are intolerant. Mm. The nature of a sect is intolerant. Now the Catholic Church was never intolerant until it was faced with a rival sect. Which uh, sect are you referring to then? Luther, whatever. Oh right, okay. Well, orthodoxy. Yeah, well, I'm they they smacked down the Celtic Church very early. I think that was the first victim, wasn't it? Well, of the Catholics. I don't feel. I mean, I'm no great. I don't want to hold a flag for the. Catholic Church, but I'm not sure we know enough about what was really going on. Mm. Uh, it sounds like mere institutional takeover, as you're suggesting. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, they, I don't know what Celtic Christianity was. You can romanticize about what it might have been. Wasn't the argument about the date of Easter? Stupid. <laughs> that's that's the. Cover story, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but they fell out. Well, maybe, but they fell out with the Eastern Orthodox on the same arguments. It was all about who had the right to say when Easter was. Or something. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, you know, quite clearly, the record of the Catholic Church has been was very good up to a point. But the, the tragedy of, of Catholicism is that it, it developed a legalistic basis for self-justification because of its union with the state. Uni unifying with the state was the catastrophe of the Christian church. There's no question about that. Mm. The day it became state religion was the end of it. But you can understand it. I imagine you've been through 300 years of persecution and then suddenly the state holds its hand out and says, 
join us and we'll join you, <laughs> you know. well I, I think it was perverted well Constantine is one thing but I, I think it went downhill even with, with Paul yeah you're of course you're right but, yeah. but, okay. But, uh, is that of course? I mean, many people look at him as some kind of enlightened, uh, important. No, Paul. Paul really was the Judas of the New Testament. I agree. There's no doubt. Yeah. But I. But we can't be entirely sure. I mean, okay. We, I wish we had time. We could go into this. You, my book on that I recommend is John the Baptist. The my the mysteries of John the Baptist book is really my account of early Christianity. Uh, it's an important. I think it's it's the one book I've written. I think is really really important. Mm. Uh, I, I because I. But go, I predict your Crowley book sells better. Well, of he, course. He's very. Hey, are there two different books? Or I'm looking at your Amazon page. I've written two books on Crowley so far. The Beast in Berlin is that a new one? Yeah, yeah, that came out uh, last year. I think that will be uh, it. It's a wonderful book. Yeah. I, I re- there are some books of mine I really like, and that's one of them, um, because I know it's it's so full of feeling, and it's like a really good wine or a good pint of beer. It's just got that. It's a really nourishing book. And, but you and really done something genius here. You take an uh, a niche of his life that is not very well known, mm. and finally documented it. So I think a lot. Yeah, it just came about. Yeah, it was wonderful to do it. It came about because. There was an Australian art uh, gallery owner who was running an exhibition traveling around Australia of Crowley's paintings, mm-hmm. not many of them, and he asked me to contribute to a book he was writing about Crowley's paintings, and I said, well, I'd like to do something on Crowley in Berlin because nobody's written about this, and I wrote sort of, uh, a thesis on it, uh, I suppose about um, 20,000 words or something. Mm. And that went in the book, and then some. Then inner traditions were saying, "What's your next?" And I said, "Well, I've got this idea. I said I've, I've written this thesis. I said I've written there's there's a lot more to it. Would you be interested?" Mm. That's how, and it came from that. So it wasn't it wasn't a big plan. And when I got into it, I found more and more, and I, I found more and more stuff that had never been published before. And uh, it's one of the greatest stories I've ever. T- I think it's an amazing story. It was like being a time traveler. I, I recreated Berlin in the very early 30s, an unknown place with mm-hmm. unknown people. And in the book, you feel you walk in the streets with him. It's it was, and it, that's how I felt doing it. Sounds like it could become a movie. It would make a bloody great movie. Yeah. yeah. Summer one of these days, you know. But I love that book. In fact, I've just tonight I've just had a letter from IT uh, Inner Traditions that approved my next book if I wanted. The one on Gurdjieff. No, that's that's finished. I've finished. Oh, that's finished. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just revising it now. Just I have to buy both of them then. Yeah, but Damn. there's another book. There's Occult Paris as well. Uh, that's not out yet. Ah, uh, that's the one. Yeah, which will be out next year. Um, it's basically what I wanted to do was to put the record straight and clearly, yeah, yeah a scholarly but also general audience, as usual. Uh, I wanted to say that the uh, French occult revival was far more involved and much more interesting than we imagine. And I wanted to, to show uh, some of this lineage. And it was tremendous. I discovered quite a lot, which I will wait till the book comes out to talk about. And, it, you know, I think you'll love it anyway. Oh, yeah. if, if you're interested in that, 
very uh, rather obscure side of the story. Because the, the thing is, in, in what sense can you claim a Rosicrucian lineage right. from something that doesn't exist? Yeah. You know, this is the yeah. problem. So the symbolists, uh, people, the, the... Very much part of the story, yeah. Yeah. Very much part of the story. And there's a whole chapter on La Paz in it, but I also wanted to show what Peladan's actual claims were based on. Right. You know? And because I have a lot of time for De Gaeta as well, I think De Gaeta was, was a genius mm. and deeply underrated yeah. individual. No, I, I have read one book about it. It's uh, the French guy, Gerald Galtier. Mm -hmm. It's uh, very much on the same time period, France, uh, say 1850 to 1930, something like that. Right. So it's interesting, yeah. Hmm. Very interesting period. By the way, my Rosicrucian book's coming out. Oh, I think I told you. No, you didn't. The didn't I? I thought my history of the Rosicrucians is being translated into French, and Roger Dache is going to write the uh, the forward, which is good news. Oh yeah, that's right. Yes, you said so. So next year there'll be two books out next year: Occult Paris and Gurdjieff. So the next one will oh have to be forward. Uh, I need to buy three of your books now. See, the thing is, I'm having, you know, one guest a week, right? I can't buy the book of everyone. <laughs> and now you're taking away from at least two of them. Because I, I need a Gurdjieff thing for myself. Right. I need a French thing. And actually, I need a Gnostic thing for myself too. But there, that I also need for uh, making a decent show on that mm. later. But since we have you on now to talk about the Rosicrucians. What about uh, Robert Flood? No, I mean Michael Meyer. I mean, he was German. Michael Meyer, he went to three book fairs at Frankfurt, and each time he's selling one of his books, and he was selling his books on the mystique of the Rosicrucian Brotherhood, and he sort of half defends them, half attacks them, etc. Michael Meyer used the clamour of the Rosicrucians to sell his books on alchem alchemy and mythology. Uh, he, he was in with uh, Moritz von Hessen. Oh. He was doctors for Moritz von Hessen. But he didn't have any personal contact whatsoever with Andre or the, the Tübingen Circle. And so he never got it. It's in my book. But Francis Yates. Yates said Michael Meyer was one of the deepest of the Rosicrucians. This, I'm afraid, simply means that Francis Yates could not understand what Meyer was talking about. Because if you read Meyer stuff, it's written in, in, in an alchemical, conceited language. And if you're not familiar with the games that writers of that period played, it would be, it, it sounds amazing, but there's no substance in it. He's, he's describing medicine. But Flood did write a book where he claimed this was the laws of the fraternity, and it didn't seem very um, metaphoric, uh, on the face of it at least. He listed uh, the criterias, which accords with what you said, healing, helping the sick. Yeah, I think Maya just copied Flood, to be honest. Okay. That's the Frit that's the Fritzius book. Mm. You talk the Laws of the Fraternity of the RC is the title. I, I have it. Well, Flood didn't write that. That was Maya. That was Maya. Yeah, that was Maya, right? Yeah, that was. Meyer. Yeah, I know. I'm mixing them up. Yeah. And it was translated by Thomas Vaughan. Laws of the Right, Fraternity. right. So how come uh, Maya did that? Was that to boost his own uh, yes. association? Yeah, yeah. Maya was Maya was a doctor on the lookout for a job. I mean, <laughs> Constantly applying Nothing to you under the sun, huh? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'm afraid that's that's the, the, the you get down to it. It's people in search of somewhere to go. Yeah.
But uh, okay, let's uh, before we wrap this up, I, I need to get your take on Shakespeare. Do you want to wrap up? Do you want to wrap up? No, no, not not <laughs> yet, me. not yet. I want your take on Shakespeare because, uh, as you know, he talked Come down to earth. <laughs> yeah, but kind of back to earth. But I think there's still gnosis here mm. because he talked about the new installation. But when did Shakespeare talk about the installation? Uh, well, Bacon did. Bacon, Bacon sorry. Veterans. Yes, but can't you see the same promise in the Shakespearean plays? I think the Shakespearean plays lend themselves very much to those who were in sympathy in England with the what they understood of the Rosie Cross mythology. I think they they recognised um, mm. the universalism and the spiritual wisdom of uh, the best of Shakespeare. There's mm. no doubt of it, and of course the humanity of it all. Uh, Romeo and Juliet, of course, is an allegory about two houses, both alike in dignity and fair Verona, where we lay our scene, a pair of star-crossed lovers. All of that is, I would say, is it's really about the Catholic-Protestant, the pseudo-divide of the Reformation, that states decided that you are a Catholic, you are a Protestant, mm. uh, you must hate them, they must hate you. Mm. Um, because we differ. Uh, why, why do we differ? Well, they believe in saints and we, we shouldn't and they, you know, all this stuff. What if two people fall in love? What if they appreciate the heart of one another? Then a rose by any other name will smell as sweet, you know. So, yes, of course, I am convinced that some people recognize these plays were vehicles, theatrical vehicles of spiritual truth and sense. Now, when we go from that to these questions about who wrote them, yeah, we're into speculative territory. Mm. Isn't it a fascinating subject, though? Alan? I mean, it is a wonderful. It, it is. It's not something that's ever going to leave. No, and it's just growing and growing. Mm. And I predict, uh, Tobias, that Petter's work will make a revival in this, especially when they confirm some of his findings. Because I am, a, I am a sold. I'm more sold than Petter himself on his discoveries. So uh, uh, I'm fascinated by Petter Amundsen's discovery of uh, codes in the first folio fascinated he's got i think the the first part of his discoveries is excellent there's no doubt in my mind that the first folio of shakespeare was assembled by people who wanted to show sympathy with the rosy cross of that i have no doubt nor is that historically strange and i believe that he has if he wants to he's got a long way to go to try and find more about that i'd like to think he'd open something up rather than was near to closing mm. yeah but uh, i don't think the world is ready if that's what you're referring to. yeah yeah but i don't think the world is ready for that there's so much invested in the old paradigm well so, of course in england yeah. in england especially in england yeah well, in England, we have this horrible expression, national treasure. <laughs> you know, any, oh, God, it's sickening. Stratfordians. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anything that's slightly historical that the government hasn't destroyed in the last 25 years is called a national treasure. National treasure means it's not scheduled for demolition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Shakespeare is a national treasure. Why? Because he brings in millions of pounds yeah. or dollars of American and foreign money, Chinese people, Japanese 
coming in to see a bit of Shakespeare. So, you know, you don't want to put them off, you know. You don't, it's no good saying... No, but I, I don't get that, because Shakespeare would be greater if there were codes in it, in a de- because people seem to think uh, that... I, I, yeah, but you, you're talking about a place, this place Stratford-on-Avon yeah. is associated with Shakespeare profoundly. We have the National Shakespeare Company. We have huge amounts of money and time and effort that are invested in this whole this whole story of Shakespeare. And, of course, they're not going to give it up because some guy in Norway has found signs in a, in a printed book, which is, you know, published after Shakespeare's death anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, of course, they're not going to give that up. It's, there's real money here. And not only that, national status is involved. Yeah. It's, 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 it's like telling – I could think of some things that would offend Norwegians. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sure. If you said, well, I'm going to write a book that proves that uh, – you would think, my God, no, no, no. No, no, no. Hayadol? <laughs> you wouldn't think of Hayadol. Yeah, I, yeah, but our monarch is, is a wonderful guy. He didn't know the never. Please don't yeah. say that. Of oh, course, yeah. you know, anything which offends national unity becomes political. And so obviously, no matter what Petter does, unless he, you know, unless he brings out the man who wrote them who says publicly, oh, I wrote them and proves it without beyond a shadow of a doubt. Yeah. You know, without that, it's just a it, it part of change. the pun of... Of speculation. Yeah, but for me at least, I, I can't see how these things can be worse, made worse, if you prove that there's an additional layer to them. Because you, we don't lose the story of Romeo and Juliet. We don't lose the stories that Shakespeare put forth. Well, come on, I agree, I agree with you. Yeah. I'm, I, I love the whole adventure of it. Mm. I'm just saying that in terms of, uh, of political reality, it's it's ludicrous to think that a, a theory is going to topple a commercial empire, mm. uh, and and Shakespeare. But that goes for everything then, everything, well, not just Shakespeare. You know, it, it, it's it's. I remember when I worked at Channel Four in England when a series called Jesus: The Evidence was shown, uh, which started with the image. Uh, it had a picture of Jesus as a sort of little statue, and the program started with it being exploded. And there was a letter from Buckingham Palace came to Channel 4 that this was, you know, this was going too far. Now, they used the image of the exploding Jesus to say that the image of Jesus has been exploded by scholarship. Mm. But, you know, it actually threatened, and I think it really did threaten. I think I don't think she was, uh, you know, the Buckingham Palace was wrong about this. Uh, that programs like that have definitely weakened uh, the hold of the public imagination where the church is concerned. So I know we're talking about Shakespeare, but Shakespeare, as I say, once he's, he's now part of the, the mythology of Great Britain. So uh, you could take a journalistic attitude and say, well, wouldn't it be great to knock it? Well, I'd say, is what you're saying true and you know, all that? Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that we're very, very far. I, I think Pedder's stuff is truly fascinating, groovy, great. I love the films. I don't know who wrote Shakespeare. I've always doubted that Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare. I remember reading a book on it 25 years ago, and I thought, well, there's very little evidence. It's mm. very unusual mm. for a writer of so much work to leave so little practical evidence that he was writing it. All right. We also forget that Shakespeare in the 17th century was not very famous. 
After his heyday in the Elizabethan period, Shakespeare went out of fashion very quickly. He was thought to be old-fashioned, old hat. It was Samuel Taylor Coleridge, English poet, in the late 18th century who said, Shakespeare's total genius, his totally divine mind. Mm. And he started the reconstruction of Shakespeare, which didn't get off the ground till the 19th century. So the notion he wasn't... Um, you know, this is the interesting thing. When the folio was first published, what were were they trying to say that this man should not be forgotten? Mm. My own view is that the codes mean that whoever financed and produced the folio recognized that they were the plays were in sympathy with the secret knowledge of the Rosicrucian mm. Brotherhood, which they must have believed existed as an actual group. But of course, the whole genius of the uh, Rosicrucian Manifestos is once you've said there's a group, you create there's a group. Mm. There's, creates, the farmer creates the Rosicrucian Brotherhood. It doesn't reflect it. It creates it. So it's a virtual society. Now, anyone can then join it. I can join it. You can join it. Elias Ashmole wrote a fervent prayer in secret. I love Ashmole. He wrote a prayer you know, in the 1650s, begging to be admitted to the, this fraternity of enlightened men. It's a spiritual fraternity. To approach this fraternity, the only way is prayer and through the hope that your work will become of interest to them. Mm. And that's how the Rosicrucian fraternity works in fact now. Who is a member? Mm. Yeah? Well, it's a person who's consistent. And you can sign yourself RC. That's the way. Now, these books were being basically autographed. The first folio I think Petter has shown was being autographed as a Rosicrucian sympathetic work. I think that's what it's doing. I don't know about all of it because there's only there's very little in the films. I've seen the recut the first two films, but he hasn't sent me the the third film partly because I'm supposed to be in it. <laughs> yeah. So I suppose it's not ready for cutting. But I, I like You've seen a TV series already, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. I thought it was brilliant. I love it. I think it's one of the best made documentaries I've ever seen and I make documentaries myself. I think it's cool. Yeah. I take my hat off to to Jurgen. I mean, he's, we're going to do an interview, he and I, a week on Friday, filmed at Shugborough mm -hmm. by the Shepherd's Monument. I like Petter very much, and I think he's sincere, yep, he is. and I think the discoveries are great. The theory starts with a debate about Shakespeare's authorship and then becomes a, a totally different story. You know, he's got sidetracked onto all this astrological stuff. They've got all this thing about that they're going to find the temple furniture in the bottom of a lake. He's worried because he thinks if they find the relics, it will be like World War Three because the crazy fundamentalists, how would they react if their own relics came up, right? Um, Islamism against Jewish extremists, that's his word. I don't think it is. I don't think. I think, there's, I think that wouldn't happen at all. What would happen is there'd be a really good news story. It'd be the top news on Monday. And forgotten on Tuesday. But on Tuesday, it would be the fourth item. There would be a National Geographic documentary. There would be quite a lot of radio. Somebody would publish a magazine. There would be a book. And in one month, 
uh, nobody would give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah. What's going even on? Though, even <laughs> though uh, the Da Vinci Code rode the rage for a year or something. Even if, but even if there was the left of the Third Temple furniture, what would there be? The remains of a candlestick, which is about, <laughs> you know, four foot wide. Yeah. The Ark was never there anyway, because that was... The Bible says it was towed out to Kirjath Jearim and never seen again. And while it would be truly fascinating and everyone would be very excited for 24 hours, I, I said to him, I said, I said it would mean a lot to uh, it would mean a lot to the Israeli government because they're always looking for. Yeah, but his theory also says that original Shakespearean documents uh, may are also been buried in quick in quicksilver. In yeah. Quicksilver. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you said yourself that Shakespeare was a national treasure, so to find original Shakespeare documents yeah. would be a well, holy relic. It's clear to me that the. Whoever wrote Shakespeare never looked after their documents. That wasn't unusual. The, the point is, it's all, all these theories are always ba based on the fact that we don't know. In other words, there's, a, there's an empty space, hmm. and then you try to account for the empty space. But it's an empty space means we don't know. And not only does nature abhor a vacuum, our minds do. So we, the moment we greet an empty space, we imagine. So... When you get over to this business about Oak Island, I think we're into fascinating but, but speculative territory, especially as it's based on the Knights Templar. Yeah, uh, there are weaknesses in that entire chain. I mean, if you start with the first folio and end up in uh, Oak Island, there are several steps here. That, that we, we are very fortunate, actually, fortunate because that part can be debunked or verified depending on uh, what happens uh, over at Oak Island. So so that we don't have to take on, on belief or anything. We just have to see. And if there's nothing substantiating it, well, it will just be a hypothesis that was once launched. Right. But hey, you've written about the Templars too? Yes. Mm. I have a I have a two chapters on the Templars. One in my book on Freemasonry, mm -hmm. uh, which is called Freemasonry, the Reality, which I think is the definitive book on masonry today. And the other book on the Gnostic philosophy has a chapter on the Templars. Mm. Purely historical. No, yeah. I'm not selling a yarn. <laughs> you know, I, I leave I leave that for dear old Michael, the late Michael Bajant, who understood right. the well. Michael was a lovely man in many ways. He understood the political meaning and applicability of these speculations. He knew that. It was in the spirit of the 60s, of the radical spirit of the 60s, that you could rewrite religion with a myth. Mm. Yeah, but I, I'd venture that Andrea and those guys did the same. And if you say, I'd agree with you. Yeah, so, so if you of say... Of course, you're right. That is why I called, I called Bajan's book in 1992. I said, this is the farmer of the 80s. <laughs> Very well put. I was, I was on to it then. You know, it was perfectly obvious to me. Yeah. Holy blood, holy grail for those who don't know it. Yes. Gurdjieff, yeah, yeah. the Greek man, uh, the Greek spiritual teacher, so-called, he did the same thing with uh, meetings with remarkable men. He produced another farmer. That's what all these people do. They're always rewriting the farmer. René Domal's uh, book on the Mount Analogue is rewriting the farmer. 
um, there are many farmers. Farmer spawned many sons of farmer. Um, the Holy Blood and the Holy Grail is a far, is is a son of the farmer. What about Dan Brown? He's of course a son of the farmer. No question about it. You know, or niece, cousin, nephew. Yeah, I see. <laughs> certainly, certainly, the notion of using a fiction to tell a truth. Mm. This is, you know. It, it was, uh, who was the playwright, um, uh, great job, Bertolt Brecht, who said, realism does not consist in reproducing reality, but in showing how things really are. Fiction can be more truthful than fact. Yeah. Orson Welles had the same concept. You could tell more profound truths about man through story than through, you know, journalistic uh, presentation. In fact, anyway, you can never trust the facts anyway, yeah. uh, as, as Henry Ford said, um, words to the effect of history is bunk or all history is bunk or most history is bunk. And of course it's bunk. Who's writing it? For what reason? What do they know? Do they know all? Exactly. I try in my work to take an, into consideration all the facts that I'm aware of and I apply more intensive uh, um, critical faculties than just that as well. I'm formulaic about it. But the fact is, somebody may come up with amazing discovery, you know, which changes the view. Although it's amazing how many discoveries tend to confirm uh, views of the truthful. I mean, people have said, that, you know, the Nag Hammadi Library, for example, gives us a completely new idea of Gnosticism. This was the, this was the view when I was a student. Yeah. Actually, I would, you know, if we ever talk about that subject, the Gnostics, I would say, in fact, in many ways, the, the, it's confirmed the best scholarship on the subject. Hmm. Another bright man said that uh, you should read myth as history and history as myth. <laughs> it's in the same vein as those quotes you yeah, that's, that, that's a nice joke. The fact is we cannot be sure of every event, but I don't believe history anyway is about event analysis. History was always story. Yeah, it was always a story. The degree—it's a question of the degree. We don't mind when we watch a war film that all the uniforms look clean, so long as the general idea that these things more or less happen—we're happy with that. We don't need a forensic history. We're never going to get it. All the witnesses are dead. It's not a courtroom history. And people try to present. A lot of people have this idea that history can be a science. Mm. It isn't a science, it uses science, but fundamentally it's an art. It's an attempt, it's an investigation. Mm. Like any investigation, it relies entirely on the material that comes to hand, plus the intuition and skill and experience of the investigator. That's all. And the bias, I, I'd say, too. Well, yes, that, that plays a part. You can completely distort an investigation by being prejudiced or biased. Yes, this is absolutely true. Look at a book written about the Crusades, written by a Muslim, and look at one written by a Christian. Good point. I mean, I remember um, when I was a student, the only book on the Cathars Albigensian Crusade, scholarly book, was by Stephen Runciman, which started with the words, listen to this, it said, uh, tolerance is a social, not a religious virtue. Hmm. Wow. Funny to hear that today with the events around us. Tolerance is a social, not a religious virtue. What Stephen Runciman was writing 
was a justification of the Catholic view of the Cathars. In other words, while liberal historians might be upset that Cathars were burned, the religious, the strictly Catholic point of view was that you had, you could never be tolerant of a heretic. Mm. Now, translate that into a, now I, the author of that book was not thinking of the hideous events we're seeing in Europe today. No, but it applies. But, but he's given them their principle. Mm. Tolerance is not a religious, but a social virtue. And that is, in fact, the argument of the fundamentalists. Your idea of what's fair or what's right is simply based on your theory of society. We claim a higher authority. Hmm. And that was his justification. And, of course, the irony of all this, that they burnt the Cathars in these holocausts, persecute the truth-tellers because they don't conform. Of course, makes any decent, by decent we mean we don't mind the Beatles singing that all you need is love, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we, 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 we love love. We agree at a hypothetical level, at least. <laughs> yes, yes, we do. We, that doesn't necessarily mean you can have my wife, yes. <laughs> 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 yeah. um, we, we, we know what decency is about. It's about a, res a reasonable respect for people and so on and so forth. Mm. Yeah, the golden rule. We're back to that. The golden rule. And it's a golden rule because it's, you know, it's, if we abandon it, we are in hell. Mm. Uh, we create, the hell comes and the moment you've, you've got people thinking they know better than that. It's a great joy for me that, to know that the man who gave birth to the Rosicrucian idea was definitely a man of this fundamental decency. Uh, he was definitely... Mm. But, but his intention uh, must have been then to create a Rosicrucian movement, according to what you've just told us. Um, well, his intention Because was... Because he must have seen, he must have seen it coming. No, I don't think... But you see, you're presuming what a Rosicrucian movement would be. I think his idea would be something like an amelioration of the bitterness that existed in Christendom through uh, the practice of sacred love. Mm. And I think, it, therefore, his idea of the, the brotherhood was simply something. You belong to it by spiritual orientation. You wouldn't sign up or go to a meeting place. Remember, they meet in the, in the farmer. The brothers meet in the house of the Holy Spirit, which is invisible. Even though people pass it by every day, they see, but they do not see. It is people who are not looking for, you know, I'm the leader of the Rosicrucians. I mm -hmm. meet, you know, it's people whose spiritual orientation is unrecognized by the world, by the wicked world, by the materialist concept, by the materialist. So it is a gnosis then? Oh, well, yes, in the purest sense, mm. it is. It is spiritual knowledge, yes. It's marifa, as they, they say in uh, Sufism. You know, it is, it's the mystical knowledge uh, of, of man seen subspecie eternitatis. Man in his... We are physical beings. The only hope for mankind is the spiritual concept. Mm -hmm. uh, there is no other. You know, yes, you can rationally shore up the the dam of your existential distress by saying I'm doing it for the future or I, I'm passing myself on through my children all the usual stuff. Uh, but the fact of the matter is the only salvation is, is, is a spiritual 
one. But but the irony here is that uh, it's not possible to make it. It's an experience-based, not a teaching-based uh, impulse then. So it's very hard to make it into a movement because it's so individual. Yeah, and I don't think uh, I don't think Andre was trying to be any more than a catalyst for a change. I don't think he had any any delusion that all people will respond. But when I look at when I you know when I traveled when I was a younger person and I traveled around Europe, the amount of goodwill I found in post-war Europe, Germany, France, Holland. Sweden, uh, these places I visited, so I'm not excluding anyone, I'm just saying this is a place I knew about. Mm. I found this, and some parts of America, there was an amazing store of goodwill that I think was unique historically, Mm. you know. This is the 70s? Well, well, actually, uh, late 70s and 80s. Mm. I I was really, it was so so easy to connect Mm. with people. Uh, in a way which I don't think people have seen since the days when every European scholar spoke Latin and you could go from Prague to to Antwerp to London to Madrid, speak Latin and be part of the same culture, more or less. Amazing time. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm per- this is a personal view. I, I personally think since the EU has pushed for more unity, it's become less unified. <laughs> less yeah. Because, of course, you know, if it's like forcing somebody into a group, you know, you say, I like that group. I like hanging out with them. That's great. The moment it says you must, it kills it. You don't want to be part of it. And and this is what these bureaucratic lunatics in Brussels don't understand. Yeah, we had a wit not to join here in Norway. So uh, hopefully if you come you here. You did indeed. You had the wit and the oil uh, and the fish. Yeah, yeah, so yeah there we It's a great combination. You got us. Yep. <laughs> You can slip on the fish. Touché. The- <laughs> <laughs> but it means that we still we do, we still have illusions of Europeanism then. So you will probably be very welcomed at a European identification notion by uh, an aboriginal region. Well, I, I, no, I I'm not interested at all in Europe as a, con- a political concept at all. It's, no. doesn't mean I'm thinking of the globe. Yeah, <laughs> I think of East, you know, we've had a historic opportunity for East and West to understand each other. And this is the direction we must. What are you referring to? Well, I'm just saying in our in post-war, oh, since yeah. Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we've had a, a historic opportunity because of the many, many factors. We've, we've got a great opportunity to start to understand one another. And uh, at the moment, the perils of this movement uh, are becoming clear, but it's a much bigger problem than, than I think idealists in the 60s thought. You know, though we have some serious, <laughs> serious problems. And the root of those problems is, I'm convinced, the notion of the spiritual philosophy and the understanding of what spirit means. I, I fear that this current historical period we're going through is going to simply leave religion with an even worse, <laughs> worse name than it had already. <sighs> uh, people say, well, you know, we want a completely materialist secularism. But, you know, that also... It's, it's, it's given birth to a new religion called scientism. Yes. I... And it's even worse because it doesn't have a heart, unlike the other religions. <laughs> It's amazing. Well, it also it has it doesn't have any. Uh, what does scientism got? You know, tomorrow we might know different. Well, that, mm. 
you know, we're always going to be this. this yes, this this idea that you can jettison uh, the the religious inheritance and go forward as uh, as humanitarian scientists. Uh, this is entirely false because mm. it doesn't take into account anything which science does not encompass. It's simply it's simply saying that science can deal with this, so we're going to live within that compass. Well. Yeah. Hell's bells, you know. What do we know? You know, how much can you measure? Can you measure love? Can it, does mm. it uh, operate on the scale? Please? Yeah, but not only that. that that's the classical philosophical uh, uh, objection. But you also have the fact that science, quote unquote, not the scientific method, of course, but the institution of science, the the Vatican of science, is ruled by unscientific principle as profit, for instance, or uh, other agendas. And that, too, breaks it. Well, we confuse science with technology is the main problem. I did a film about for Channel 4 about belief in God. One of the best things was that I went to the University of Sheffield and spoke to an astronomer. And he said, uh, you know, he, he was, that was what he did. He was an astronomer, taught astronomy. He said, oh, he says, I measure um, comets. He said, actually, finding out how a comet decays is nothing compared to trying to work out why human love decays. Uh, hmm. He said, actually, he says, I think I've got the easier job because I have my measuring stick and I have a phenomenon hmm. and I can measure it. Whereas he said, the theologian has got a far more difficult task on his hands. <laughs> and so I would love to see the theology return to be queen of the sciences. Hmm. I don't know who the queen would be. <laughs> I'm am I volunteering? Um, I do. I think it is vital to put all this human stuff in in a proper order, and I think it's the fundamental order that we we we've lost sight of. But again, we can't repeat the past. We there wasn't a golden age when they got it all right. There were certain individuals who, in my opinion, got damn close to the the right spirit of the thing. And I think people like Andrei was one of them. And therefore, I think and and Ashmol. Ashmole certainly, yeah. He did found. Great, uh, great man. He did found uh, what he called the Invisible College. I don't know where you got. Uh, which book have you been reading? Well, no, no, no. no Roy, Royal Society wasn't that called Invisible College before it was called Royal Society? That's that's part of the mythology, but no, it doesn't matter. Oh. The Invisible College was a phrase of Robert Boyle, mm -hmm. and Robert Boyle was writing to a friend, and he said that he and his pals at Oxford, now I was at Oxford, so I know the gag, his yeah. and his pals had really formed a kind of invisible college. What he meant was that he was studying, I think, at Wadham College, I forget which college he was at, and his friends who shared this Rosicrucian excitement, that there was a, there was a how can I say, an, a, a religious, a spiritual connection in other words he began to see that god wanted men to explore nature in its deepest recesses that it was a religious ideal to know about nature and he and because he was a protestant and an evangelical he was very excited about this he said in other words he'd formed a kind of an, an invisible college meant one i'm at this college there at that college but actually we're a kind of college of our own 
Now, like uh, the manifestos then, like the uh, impulse from that. Yeah, well, he'd read the manifestos and he he was seized by the, this beautiful vision mm, of. Okay. But the notion of an this is this is a play on words. The fact that the house of the Holy Spirit is invisible does not mean that Boyle is saying that they've got that the Royal Society. Anyway, the Royal Society wasn't invisible, nor was the the Gresham College meetings which preceded it invisible, nor were the meetings in Oxford that Boyle. <laughs> Of course not. No, no, the, no. The, these are mere human beings. But I was thinking it was an homage to to the Rosicrucian impulse. Oh well, yeah, quite possibly. But I think that's. But they've made they pushed it much further than that, haven't they? In the theory. Yeah. So you have the idea that there was a secret society doing this. It wasn't secret. It was just <laughs> we know that friends of Ashmole formed. I know from my book because it's not in any other. I've, I've named the names: Nathaniel Henshaw, his brother, and others formed. Uh, society in London in the early 1650s deliberately based on Andre's book, The Model of a Christian Society. That attempt to form that society where they practiced alchemy and wrote about it, and Ashmore was involved, uh. and Robert Child was involved, and, and other people you may know from the period, they really did try to form... Well, it was a model of a Christian society, but of course the model of a Christian society of Andre was the Rosicrucian society. So they in fact formed probably the first uh, articulate yeah. Rosicrucian society in the world. And that definitely contributed to establishing societies such as the Royal Society, but also I'm sure it influenced Freemasonry in London. Yeah, I was thinking about that. It influenced, influenced, not founded not created, no. influenced. It was one of the intellectual streams that was around at that time. Now, we've lost a lot of the documentation because the uh, you know, so-called Grand Lodge, you know, which was basically a Whig um, uh, creation in 17, from 1716 onwards, destroyed, they destroyed a lot of the early documentation mm. of the... Uh, uh, purposely? Pardon? Purposely? Oh, yes, yes. They said it was, according to James Anderson, who was a Scottish uh, Protestant, he said it was so that it would, uh, scrupulous brethren did it, he said, so it wouldn't fall into the wrong hands. Wow. Well, you don't, you don't burn your manuscripts uh, because somebody else might get them. You look after them, don't you? I mean, well, I, I think there's a precedence from the Vatican here. They, they've destroyed uh, scriptures that was dangerous to them. So yeah. I, can see, I can see how this uh, lunacy continues. The fact of the matter is, is that is the, gra the lodges that were formulated after 1716 in London were, were dominated by a different kind of people mm. uh, to those who were operating in the very, very very few lodges in London and little bits of England uh, at that time. Anyway, I, that's all in my book, Freemasonry, The Reality. And I'm sure they're going to find... Yeah, but do, do, do we know what happened to this group? Which group? The one uh, that Ashmole, the, the one that tried to... Um, yeah, yeah, they just got on, you know, they, they did it for a couple of years and they stayed friends and they went off and did different things. I mean, at one point they were probably sort of living in each other's houses in London. But it was <laughs> a reaction to the Cromwellian period, you see, because under Cromwell, because they were, most of these guys were royalists, how do you pass your time? As a, a known royalist, I mean, Ashmole was known to be a royalist. He had to pay a tax to the government because he'd supported Charles I. How do you spend your time? And one of the ways that uh, Ashmole spends his time, apart from earning his living as a lawyer at the Inner Temple in London, is he goes to ma the mathematicians' feasts. He goes to 
Freemasons meetings, mm. you know, and they trying to develop something that they hope to God will survive this dreadful republic. England was a republic in the 1650s. Mm. There was no king, there was no queen, there was no royal family uh, in England with power. It was a re we had the republicanism that so many left wingers want today. We had it, and of course, it was a catastrophe. It was a disaster. It was hated by the people, and uh, it it was ended up being a kind of living joke. Mm. Cromwell couldn't handle; he could not control what had happened when they cut off the king's head. Mm, mm. And of course, it last. This this travesty lasted for eleven years. The point was, how did you spend your time in the process? And Ashmole devoted his life to alchemy, and the kind of purely scientific interests, which became the Royal Society, founded in 1661. Mm. So maybe we do have to thank Cromwell for that. <laughs> <laughs> Indirectly. It's, yeah. a, it's a it's a much I'm sure it's going to emerge, you know, as a far, far more exciting story than than we know even now. But again, in British academic life, the historians are totally hostile to the word Rosicrucian in history. They would simply prefer it didn't exist in England. But mm -hmm. most, you know, many British historians, uh, I have to say, the traditional type are narrow minded people whose intellectual priorities belong to the you know immediate post-war. Uh, it's tragic, but um, um, my experience is that that is the case. Now, there must must be other exceptions, but I haven't seen many of their books. You know? So we have this thing now called... No, but I, I'm afraid that's... true in it, Norway, is it? Yeah, it's not limited to England, unfortunately. So Yeah, yeah. this is the sort of conservative, we know best uh, concept. And of mm. course, because all academic life, as Andrei said, is based on patronage. And when you have Caesaropapism, that is, the power rests with the court mm. in religious matters, as we have in Protestant Europe. When the power rests with the court, you get the court's view. If we were Catholic countries, the power rests with the Vatican court, different point of view. And that's the problem. We've got different kinds of popes. In the Protestant Northern Europe, we, do, we have many popes. Yeah. Uh, democratically elected sometimes, but they all function as bloody popes, offering us their damn wisdom, you know, which we're supposed to accept. It comes through the education has been taken out of the hands of the church, put in the hands of the state. Now, the state take money to do these jobs. You know, the people who serve the state do it for cash or ideological reasons. But they're no different to the papacy or the cardinals. There's no mm. essential difference. No, it's the same structure. Except perhaps that maybe the Pope at least has some concept that there's life beyond the stock market. <laughs> well, today's Pope might actually have that. The new one, Pope Francis. Well, yeah, but he strikes me as a, it's the other. It's the you know you can get you, we keep going from one extreme to the it's other. Certainly, been a, a, a leap from the last one. But no matter who sits on the religious throne, it's still a spiritual failure by the very nature of how it's structured. Once uh, something grows, uh, the controllers, authoritarians, power psychopaths, etc., moves in and takes over. It goes for everything, not just gross yeah, well, yeah. But the Internet is a tool for freedom on so many levels, not just social, political and journalistic, but even spiritual. Not that the net itself is a tool for that, but um, but uh, it can offer availability that didn't exist before. 
it makes the world smaller and allows for kindred spirits to hook up. Right. And we can even take charge of our own education. This can counter to some degree the decline in academia, spirituality, what have you. I mean, take, for instance, the subject of esotericism, which is much more known today as a possible approach to the divine or even the academic approach to it. Uh, I mean, you complain that they have no interest for it within their own institutions. Well, uh, no, but I... you're right. If you look at uh, Facebook, for instance, you have this group called European Society for the Study of Western Esotericism, which is an attempt, which is it's a like page for people who are academically inclined towards that obscure subject. And it's got, for uh, now, it's got 2,200 likes. Uh, there's uh, people out there who really are interested in an academic approach to this, even though one should think it's an oxymoron. But it's, yeah, I think recognizing the truth of the history is very important because the first thing the enemy wants to deny is that it exists. Yeah, right. That's the first thing. So they, they, they think we, you know, people made all this stuff up. So obviously, the more historical studies that are made, it's, it's good news. But isn't the thing that you're accepting it on a phenomenological basis? Uh, th that's a way to bypass the people who try to uh, stigmatize it based on hi historic or religious arguments. Then you could approach it through phenomenology. Uh, it's not about what is true or not, but about what did they... What did it, ha did it happen? How true was it to them, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I think all these approaches are important. Yeah. Ultimately, what matters is that the, the gnosis, as Ripman used to call it, the gnosis, carries on. That's what's important. That will carry on anyway because it's in people. You know, it's born in people. Mm. Uh, and all they need is a catalyst to excite it. When they see it, they recognize it, whether it's in a movie or a song or a poem or studying our religious education or, you know, gazing at the pewter tankard like Jakob Burma. Anything can turn this thing on. It's in people. But culturally speaking, we were in a position in the 80s, and I, that's why I worked with Ripman, because I could see we were, in, we were in a position to give this subject uh, cultural respectability. Yeah. Which is, I know there was another side, you know, if he becomes respectable, inevitably there's something in Gnosis which turns away from that. Yeah, corruption. Because you're not meant to work with the priesthood. You know, it's always going to be subversive of the materialist, conservative, worldly mentality. There's no question, you know, many people I've worked with, you know, have been very interested up to a point, And then they worry about their houses, their jobs, their mortgages, their future. And they decide that they'll be better off listening to the world gospel. You know? The essence of Gnosis is countercultural. No question of it. it. It denies everything that the, the, the banks want you to believe. But not in a destructive way, but in a way that they, anyway, the bank will never understand. You know, just will not. You know, they'll smile gently and say, no, thank you. you know, and if you persist, they'll, they might, uh, you might find yourself disappearing. Is you? It's, it's a creative spirit. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, like we talked about. I, the only reason I didn't become a painter was because I just thought, well, there are, the walls are full. You know, there's no room left for a painter. And anyway, it's been done, and uh, I don't know, what can I do? What can I do? That's, uh, that's why you, it takes a, a Hermes type to, to create something. 
but it's very hard. Yes, that's my thing. I, I bring to my study what a painter brings to the canvas or what a poet brings to the pen and the musician brings to the keyboard. That's, that's what I try to do. Only because it comes naturally. Though. If, it doesn't, if it's not natural, I don't want to know about it. But I believe you should have no right to study Gnosticism unless you can raise people to the level of it. You've no right to be in it. Students of Gnosis, they're unnecessary. There's no, what, what's the, you know, it's not a subject you can learn. Mm. The job of Gnostic teaching is to open people's inner mind. Mm. And there is no way of doing that unless the, I can't, how can I say, you can only do it when you do it. You can't fabricate this thing. You know, you, you have a certain amount of, it's like watching a rocket, you have a certain amount of explosion at the bottom, and then this thing's got to go up. Yeah. Uh, but you've got to take, you've got to take the audience with you. And if, if you haven't given them uh, a glimpse of the stars, you, you haven't done your job. This is a case for keeping it out of academia and keeping it within. Yes, there is, a, there is a case for that. And of course, it always was. It was mm. a case of you didn't learn this at university, but you joined a Masonic lodge or a Hermetic yeah. lodge or a magical society. Mm. However, I think uh, I take the general view that we've now reached a maturity where it is necessary for people to know that this exists at all because it's no longer easy for people to know about things like Freemasonry. And anyway, even if you join a Masonic Lodge, you won't find spiritual teaching there anymore. Mm, good point. Now, also, there's a hunger for topics as what we are talking about here. But the people, people are very well aware of what's coming out of the East, but have no idea of what's in our own backyard. That's absolutely right. Mm. I mean, yeah, but it's strange because I've noticed that for some weird reason, this topic uh, has interested uh, the new atheists, the materialists, the the skeptics, the yeah, yeah, I'm scientists people. Uh, for some reason, they are attracted to this topic. Is it because they think it, it's against authoritarian religion and therefore as a humanitarian thing? May that that may be uh, because there are some overlapping between telemic circles and uh, new atheist circles, so that may very well be one of them. But they're also fond of obscurities, uh, you know, knowing. Uh, yeah, they want to. They want to feel they've got the esoteric knowledge. Yep. Even if they have to deny it, they want to feel they've got it. Yes. So the, the, then they can quench it from any people who doesn't have a doctor degree. But you know, you know it's a total fact and a truth that esoteric knowledge cannot be defiled uh, from without. It's simply not a subject that can be passed on verbally. You can appeal to something in people, but you cannot create that in them. And so in a way, I would, I would say you cannot give away, you cannot surrender esoteric secrets because they, the spiritual component will not be understood by non-spiritual people. This is a concept of knowledge which completely defends itself. Yeah. It doesn't need protection. It doesn't even need secrecy. It's just good. It's probably wise not to trumpet it for all sorts of reasons. It doesn't do you any good anyway. <laughs> and, and I think Jesus put it well, you know, do not cast pearls before swine. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they can't appreciate it, so don't waste your time. Give them what they want. Pigs will. You know, give them what they like. Now, these people who think they're awfully smart, think they can, they've always thought they could, you know, they can take this knowledge, make it their own, and manipulate it. Mm. I do believe that whenever 
any sort of spiritual thing gets going, you you get this. The harpies arrive. Egos, egos always ruins it. Yes, you get the sort of ungoverned ego. People who think they've got a right to attention. People who want to profit, uh, their ego wants to profit from something. They just don't. They don't get it. They, they just think of themselves as. They just don't think it's funny. You know, it was really, it was embarrassing how stupid. My daughter was was, was like ten. She had more in, more concept than they had. <laughs> so the idea of esotericism is is very disturbing to them. Yeah. There is no irony. Uh, there's no ironic concept of these things. They don't have the subtlety. And there's no metaphor. No. In the thinking. So, so mm. you know, it it worries me because uh, some of the things that of mine that come out if. People see them; they 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 react in really quite hostile ways. It's quite painful. Mm. It's a sign of the times, and so they think they've got it all. Yeah, they I could speak all day, and they'd never get it. It's I think it's miraculous that anyone gets it, <laughs> <laughs> notwithstanding yourself. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. fundamental something. Yeah. It's a spiritual disposition. And, uh, I, I guess ignorance is bliss. Well, until you become aware of it. <laughs> When you become aware that maybe you say, "Oh Christ, I had no idea. I didn't know anything." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not so ignorant anymore. <laughs> right. Wow, that's a dangerous. Uh, I think psychopomps aren't very popular until you know they are sought for. <laughs> well, that's right. In a crisis, they want Winston Churchill, but in peacetime, they hate him. Yeah. yeah. People who actually really understand. I mean, so Churchill knew what he was fighting. The others didn't. They they still thought it was about politics. He knew it was it was it was it was profound. He, he was a druid, I read. Yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah he was. Yeah, he was also Freemason, but I, oh, okay. Ch Churchill was. Not to be defined spiritually. I, he didn't believe in life after death, for example. Oh. He was a realist about uh, man's span on earth. He thought we were here to, we had our chance to make our place in history, and that was it. He was historically minded. Um, he, he had a firm grasp of reality. I wouldn't want Churchill to be any other way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I don't, I, I'm not sure, but I mean, You know, if you talk about life after death, well, it's a very difficult one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, but life after death. I mean, uh, you, you define life, define death. Yeah. What we mean is, uh, how willing are you going to be to go? If I said to you, you're going to die at ten, ten tomorrow morning, right? Are you happy about it, <laughs> or are you going to try and run? Yeah, well, it depends. So, yeah, of course, mm. no one wants to die. Nobody who's sane. <laughs> yeah, maybe. No maybe. I, I know. Uh, I know. They say Empedocles uh, declared his death and then went into the volcano. <laughs> But maybe he was crazy. <laughs> well, maybe he was just very dramatic and yeah. wanted to make you know good showman. Well, yes, it might have been. You know, he probably thought that's my best, the best thing I can yeah. do. You know, I've, I've said everything and I've nothing to say. And rather than grow old and dull, I'm going to make a big show of my passing. Yeah. I mean, he wouldn't be the first person who died to prove that he wasn't afraid of death. Mm. Um, yeah, I guess we need something to die for. 
Well, we don't get it. You know, you, you, when you die of cancer, you don't die for anything, do you? You just die because we don't we don't have the science to stop it. Yeah. When the time comes, it's all about having known yourself, practiced gnosis auton. <laughs> Funny thing about the word gnosis is that in the sound is the word. N- oh, I always pronounce it with a G. But in English, it's supposed to be silent, I know, unlike, right. unlike original Greek. But um, it's... Yeah. So uh, Greek, it's not gnosis, no, it's omega, not omicron. Yeah, but, but the funny irony here is that it sounds like the word no. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be easy. <laughs> Which you should be, that should be a clue, right? <laughs> You'd think so. Yeah. No, you know, in the ancient times, it was so important for a teacher also to be able to pronounce the sacred words right, because that was a part of their uh, conviction that something was transferred, right? Sure. Right. And I th- was it in the was it in the Samothrakian? Uh, some of these ancient mysteries, where you couldn't even become a priest uh, or an exponent of it if you didn't uh, manage to sing or not sing but vibrating that you had a voice that actually could resonate at all notes at all levels <laughs> that's that's, sounds, that's quite, sounds brilliant to me. Yeah, quite, quite the needle's eye if you ask me <laughs> yeah i do think the pronunciation is very important i think you should try try and feel feel the sound of the word for the very obvious reason that the utterance is everything actually writing something down is only the reflection of a reality it's never the reality and the point was of course teaching a subject is not the same as writing about it because yeah. if you teach it you you've got to, you find ways of making people understand yeah. it it's it's so much you about chal- energy yeah yeah you've got to challenge them inwardly mm-hmm. you've got to look in their eye ask questions to them engage like people who talk from the heart all right and are interested in the experience right obviously and not people that are objective analysis. So it's incapable of understanding the essence of the subject, but merely a historian Mm. of ideas. Any tit can be a historian (laughs) of ideas. Understanding and applying the ideas is the work of a master. Yeah, but you you can't expect that in academia. Which is why, my dear, that Tobias Jerton has never tried to get a job in academia. I didn't want to. I didn't like it. It's a long way to Exeter. Mm. I didn't like doing it because I'm not into. I, d- I didn't get into this field so I could I could um, uh, contribute to dead volumes. <laughs> yeah. I, when I think how many uh, doctorates lie on shelves, I don't. I didn't want to add to the paper right. issue. I left Oxford when I was 20 years old, and I've earned my living outside of academia. Mm. You know, the whole thing in America is very different. The whole thing is self-help. So if you've got a religious insight, you start your own group. Not through academicians. They don't think Mm. of the universities in the way we do. It's the other. I mean, if you look at America, one amazing thing is there are no art colleges. The whole rock and roll thing came out of art colleges. Liverpool School of Art, London School of Art. Mm. That's right. That's That's right. gave Mm. you David Bowie, John Lennon, all of these people, Mm. Pete Townsend. All comes out of art colleges, punk movement. But Eric, no, not humor. Humor comes from lawyers and economic studies. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course. Um, but in America, there are no art colleges. They don't have them. Really? So not even in San Francisco? 
they, oh. You can study art, you can join a group, yeah. but they don't have the institutional backup for this sort of thing at all. And it's one of the catastrophes in America is, is if you've got a situation where you have to pay for everything, it's got to be profitable. It's very hard in real terms to get anything going that's lasting. It was a freak in the 60s that so much self, you know, there was suddenly, you know, height Ashbury and there was a lot, a lot of people set up self-help groups and all the rest of it. In the end, it became groups in universities because the universities were funded. You couldn't get the funding. And, and today uh, is in much worse conditions all over the world. Yeah, It's much worse now. Because I, I'm sorry to say it's identical in Norway. You know what they did in Norway even? They converted their system. That was after I studied at university. But they converted the system to the American system. <laughs> You know, with uh, well, I guess you have the same here, but uh, in England. And in England, you know, the government's view of a university is that it's it's vocational. You send your children to university so they can get a job. Mm. Yeah. When I went to when I went to university in '78, there was no concept of a job. I didn't even think of it. I was going to. I thought. I just I didn't think beyond it. To me, going going to university was like. It's every age has its insanities, but ours seems to have all, all of them at the same time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but but you know, uh, you could turn that around too. Um, I don't know why, but for some reason, we also have uh, many of the good things of the past. I'm, I'm not saying democratically spread around, but there's so many people now. And there's so much education and knowledge now that you kind of find also brilliance. The difference, I think, is that today there's no uh, brilliance in it. So you can't find brilliant people uh, ahead, but they're not there because of their brilliance. The system doesn't encourage brilliance as it could do in the past. Equality is the enemy of genius. Yeah. I see what, yeah. But remember, I'm, I'm from Norway. We started all this shit. Oh, it's your fault. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, we were, oh, we were just first. I always think of, when I think of <laughs> Norway, I think of the heroes of Telemark. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, 50 years of social democracy, wanting to, they, they started with something right. They wanted to lift the poor up and give us a chance. But, you know, it also meant to flatten out the brilliance, right? Everybody becoming Equal, so to speak. So much for equality. So it, it's, it's a plus and it's a minus of all medals. And that medal is that mediocrity has been the uh, real uh, royalty of Norway <laughs> the last 20, 30 years. And all these things you're talking about here, this pettiness in, 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 among, uh, in academia and all that, it's, it's here too. It's been here for so long. Because the state is everything and the individual is nothing. Yeah. But hey, um, before we um, we are done here today, we need uh, one more take from you on uh, the relationships to the Masons, because apparently the Masons was a real group. So, and you've been written about the connections to the Rosicrucian, and of course we don't have time to go uh, into all the depths you probably prefer, but is there some way to give us this brief version of that relationship? Because all these people who sympathized with the Rosicrucian seems to have joined <laughs> proto-Masons. So where did they come from then? Well, I think the, the thing is in the 18th century, really, this is when you get the rapprochement. Mm -hmm. profound rapprochement between the neo-Rosicrucians, which emerge in Germany particularly, uh, German states, 
not only in Germany, but primarily so. Somehow, masonry provides the model for the neo-Rosicrucian groups. Mm. There's something in the Masonic system uh, which lends itself to a Rosicrucian realization. So it's almost like the, the, the masonry provides the shoe. You have this idea of the lodge, the master, uh, the jewel, the, you know, you've got, you've got this notion and uh, the idea that there's a, a hidden art behind the knowledge of building, which of course is a very biblical idea. Joseph, Jesus's father is a tectone a mason. So it's really in the 18th century when this link is really forged. Relations between the masons and the 17th century earlier evidence is mostly built, mostly built on the fact that Elias Ashmole, uh, born in 1617, died 1692, we know was both deeply sympathetic to the Pharma Fraternitatis and inspired by it. And we also know he was one of the first Freemasons who had no direct connection with the building trade. Mm-hmm. And when we trace the members of the lodge he was initiated in, which was in Warrington, uh, in the, the territory of the Sankey family in, uh, in Cheshire at that time, uh, we find that most of the members were gentlemen, uh, not tradesmen. Whereas in Scotland, for example, the lodges were primarily to do with the business of masons. The word in England, Freemasonry, a Freemason means a worker in freestone. Freestone mm-hmm. is a stone that's good for carving. That's the origin of the word, a Freemason. And it's, it's an English word. Uh, it goes back, we know, at least to the 14th century. But anyway, it was an English word. The Scots didn't use it. They referred to masonry. In England, it was free, it's Freemasonry. Mm. But in this period, when Ashmole writes about his initiation in 1646, he breaks the word up into Free-Mason, with a capital F, Freemason. And I think mm. he is distinguishing himself slightly, in some way, from the trade. Now, the Masons had very interesting legends that tie in with the Hermetic story. The pillars that were of interest to the early Masons were the pillars of, were called the pillars of Seth, on which the early the early knowledge of Adam was written. They weren't interested in the Solomonic pillars. This comes later. It's fascinating. Mm. And uh, Ashmole was a, it seems to be it was initiated in October 1646 into a very uh, well we appear early lodge. Now, the other evidence for masonry in London, in London at this point is in 1638, we have uh, renter wardens accounts from London masons. And these reveal that there was an inner group within the London Company of Freemasons, as it was called, the London Company of Freemasons. And this inner group had been through what they call an exception, exception, an exception. So if you paid uh, so many guineas, to the London Company Masons, you could go through this thing called the exception. Now, this word exception is very critical because we talk about free and accepted masonry in the 18th century. So it's obvious uh, to an objective analysis that the while it was a trade company, the London Company Masons, they had another side where they brought in people to a higher level. Mm-hmm. Now... We must get away from this idea that all Freemasons were a bunch of sort of peasants uh, chipping stone. <laughs> if you were a king, if you were a king's master mason, 
which uh, Nicholas Stone, for example, around the same period, early 17th century was, you were one of the most highly paid men in the country. You were a wealthy man. Nicholas Stone, who was a king's master mason in the 1630s, could send his son to Italy and learn about Renaissance art, sculpture, and so on. Mm. In that world, they made these Freemasons, leading Freemasons, made the company of intelligent and sophisticated men. The most intelligent, sophisticated form of thought in the early 17th century was associated with this idea of a renaissance of wisdom. And the key word for that is Rosecroix, RC. That defines your commitment wow. to a renaissance, a renaissance of learning and wisdom. It is perfectly clear to me that Ashmal had this and shared it with some, some members of the trade company. Now, masonry as we know it is a development of a, of a later period, 50 years later. This whole thing is sort of reborn out of what's left of the 17th century movement. And we haven't time to go into all the details, but they're kind of new masonry. You think about your United Grand Lodge, right? Well, that, you don't get a United Grand Lodge until 1813. It was the Grand Lodge of London. They called themselves a Grand Lodge to aggrandize themselves. <laughs> there was no Grand Lodge. What you, you had the Company of Masons, which yeah. was a trade body, but it had, we imagine, some form of esoteric ritual, but we have no idea what it was. Mm. We, but we have indications from people who were associated with the movement. And the whole thing was taken over by the Whigs, that is the supporters of the Protestant Hanoverians, in the early 18th century. And the movement was then dominated by government, uh, sympath people sympathetic to the Hanoverian regime. And that was the masonry that was exported to Germany and to France. Well, that Fran France was interesting because in, Fran in Paris, you also had the older Masons coming in, uh, supporting the Stuarts. So Masonry in Europe then reflects British political uh, crises between the Jacobites, the supporters of the Stuarts dynasty, and the supporters of the German Protestant Hanoverians. And in Paris, the so-called Scottish, hence Stuart, etc., Masons form their own lodges, they are political lodges linked to the cause of the Stuarts. And, you, and that distinction between Scottish masonry and English masonry is with us today. Mm. And it was a political crisis. It comes out of the political crisis of the late 17th, early 18th century. Mm. In that world, the, it was a natural world, especially on the continent, more than England. Esoterica was bound to flourish. And there's only ever been one brand of esoterica, and it's more or less, we can call it hermetic. We now probably use the word Gnostic. They wouldn't have used that word then, but it would have been a hermetic universalism. And the lodge is an obvious place for that to happen, because here is a place where men of different faiths, mm. Catholic, Protestant, different nations can meet in brotherhood. Uneducated. Uneducated. And the whole concept of we are interested in knowledge. You know, there is a link between this Rosicrucian ideal mm. of free knowledge chimes in with the Masonic idea, which is that all good knowledge is the Mason's work. Plus, you, once, you, once you elevate the idea of the pillars into the idea of the temple, well, the temple of God. In the 18th century, the idea of the Templum Dei is nature. 
So mm. the Mason becomes a builder of a new concept of universal being, of universal nature. So a scientist can express his spiritual longing through his brotherhood, which is universal. And this is the foundation of what could have been, what could have been a phenomenally amazing world. Uh, of, of, and this was, of course, the hope. This is what people at Ashmole had seen the seed of. But, of course, it starts to hit political realities. Masonry hits up against the Catholic Church in Austria and, and Germany, southern German states, and so on. And, and Masonry, like all these things, is neutered and turned into a boys' club, which it is today. Yeah. A boys' club with many wonderful boys in it who have, <laughs> who have great, you, you know, a few of them I know have, have wonderful Rosicrucian dreams. Mm. I believe very strongly in the goodness of the philosophy of masonry. I do. What I don't, I'm not interested in is belonging to any club concept. The moment it becomes a club, I'm not interested. I'm interested in the philosophy. I'm interested in the history. I think the principles of masonry are tremendously important. But the fact is they're part of a uh, social system which is now controlled by the status quo of whatever country they're in. Mm. And we know that in really unfree, I mean, we're nobody's free. But in the really unfree parts of the world, masonry is, of course, forbidden completely, um, especially the Islamic world. There's been you know, tremendous hatred of masons, all sorts of propaganda, mm. because the, the the protocols of the elders of Zion is their yeah. excuse, uh, yeah. which was dreamt up by the Okhrana, the Russian secret service. And, uh, you know, these people in these countries who are Masonically inspired run tremendous risks and, and, and one should, they should be supported. I met this Hungarian man recently and the persecution of masons in Hungary is a fact today. You know, masons and Jews, all that stuff. Yeah. And to be a mason in Hungary today it requires real courage. Yeah, but it's almost a Nazi government, isn't it? Yes, yes. So. But you know, we don't hear in English English news no reports on this at all. There hasn't been a single report in the English news about what's happening in Hungary. Really? Yeah. What about Greece? You get something from them? Nothing. I can tell you, the English people are kept in a kind of baby innocence. Mm. Really, I mean, I'm not kidding. I'm, I'm astonished. We got free transport of knowledge, but uh, nobody's transporting it. <laughs> There's nothing to transport anymore. <laughs> it's like you can get everything you want, but apparently nobody wants it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there's nothing new under the sun because, uh, I mean, uh, hermetic, Gnostic streams have been suppressed time immemorial. So we see that, okay, even the Masons, the Yazidis, the Sufis, the Kabbalists, uh, you name it. Yeah. We, I could go on, but the point is that uh, these subcurrents have always been been suppressed by the powers that be and is still going on. Even in so-called free countries, we see the pressure building up. That's where the so-called uh, junk conspiracy comes exactly. in. Exactly. These, uh, on the one hand, I criticize uh, the completely oblivious to powerful authorities within spiritual religious spheres, and on the other hand, they complain about these small groups which are pointed out as scapegoats, and completely blind to the fact that totalitarian regimes uh, cracks down on them and persecutes them yeah, fair enough. but the western media is, is generally blind to this and if you since most journalists seem to be of a sort of more or less leftish 
left liberal point of view, they think the idea, well, what any of them who know about masonry will probably say, well, it's an old fashioned thing past its time. Mm. Uh, well, you could argue that about everything, religion, Christianity, uh, yeah. you know. Yeah, but there has been this particular accusations, uh, as, uh, even against Rosicrucians, even though they hardly exist, but also against the masonry, especially this conspiracy view that there's something sinister. And then you have, of course, examples of real corruption that doesn't exactly help. What is more sinister than any government body? Yeah. <laughs> You know, the word conspiracy means to to whisper, conspire. That's all it means. It means people saying things that you don't know about. Well, governments are doing it all the time. They are the conspirators. They create the conspiracy theories. Um, then some poor sat writes a paperback book saying we're not being told the truth, and he's called a conspiracy theorist. Well, we're not being told the truth is the point. Yeah, but what, what what would you say to those who pick? At you, I can't. You can't get into every single conspiracy. It's a joke. It's like talking about your neighbours. You know, who knows what? <laughs> Do you know? Do I know? Do I know what? I write about what I know about, and I can tell you that from my point of view, that uh, there isn't any institution in the world that is perfect. <laughs> so. Mm. Yeah, but the big question is, is there any institution in the world who deliberately try to destroy the world as their fantasy I, I, is? Well, I, I, I like James Bond films, um, <laughs> on the, and we, we identify with Bond, don't we? So most, most yeah. of us don't want anybody uh, manipulating the world. I don't know any evidence of any um, covert uh, Masonic system. Every... The, of all the thousands of people who repeat the same story, which was first dreamt up by Hammer Pergstall in 1818, that there's some kind of antichrist movement. Exactly. You know, all this stuff is just the same story repeated. It stems from fundamentalistic circles and right-wing extremist circles. I'm afraid it does. And, and mm. perfectly decent people, well, I say perfectly decent, but deeply unimaginative and uninformed people buy this stuff because it suits them. There's not much you can do about it in a world with a free press. You know, you can you can publish a refutation, but then they publish an anti-refutation. Yeah. You can publish your anti-anti-refutation. <laughs> you know, you can, and this is the way it's going to be. You know, yeah. uh, I can only say truth will out, but very few people will recognize it. Mm. Truth is not a democratic phenomenon, I'm afraid to say. People tend to believe what they're depending on how frightened they are of anything at any particular time, conditions what they will accept as true. Uh, this is the human weakness. And we're, very good point. You know, we're very far from from dealing with this. Uh, mm. Everybody in their life wants to achieve something, even if it's destructive. They, some people would rather be known for being destructive than the, the harder road, which is to create. I like to think there's a conspiracy of love, I like to think there's a conspiracy of truth. I like to think there's a conspiracy of knowledge that people are working secretly, quietly, and without attention to make mm. this world a truly uh, more beautiful experience for everybody who wants a beautiful experience. And that's the key point. Do you want a beautiful experience? Well, mm. some do, and tragically, some don't think they do. Now, we went through all this in the 60s, uh, this business, you know, do you want a better world? Well, how do we get it? Do we listen to ABBA records or go to the discotheque? Or what, what are, do we take drugs? What, what, what's the way to this better world? I don't think there's ever been any 
uh, consensus on <laughs> precisely what makes people better. Uh, mm. And yet we know it when we see it. And people kid themselves that there's some, some cheap, nasty, easy way. Uh, there isn't. Uh, the spiritual road, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I, it seems like I'm dictating. I don't mean to, but... No, no. You know, I, I, I th I th my own view is that the Rosicrucian mystique is a positive one. And I, I, I don't feel the need to defend it because I don't, I don't know of any crime committed by Gnostics. <laughs> I don't think the Gnostics are known for mass murder. I don't think no. the Gnostics are known for rape. I don't think they're known for blowing up innocent people. Mm. I think they're generally, they might be known for some curious opinions that their contemporaries think are strange or odd or uh, disturbing or unacceptable. Or subversive to the powers that be. Subversive to the powers that be. But do we know who the powers that be really are? You know, this mm. is the question. I, uh, you know, do we know who these, who are the powers that be? I think they're mostly imaginary. There's no invisible finger, invisible hand. Only if we believe it, you know. Uh, Satan is quickly neutralized when, when you're not afraid. It is fear that generates the nightmare, isn't it? When you have nightmares at night, it's because something in your life is troubling you. It's we generate the fear. Could we say that the rose is a symbol of love? The rose? Mm. Uh, yes, you can. Uh, I, I, I would say... Uh, the antidote to fear? Yeah. I like the fragrance notion. Um, yes. What is the antidote to fear? Courage? Um, truth, I would say. Mm. Truth. An al-haq. As uh, Al, as the great Sufi said, um, I am the truth. To not understand what that means, you've got to be an exalted mind. Gnosis Auton, I think. Yes, I, I do. Um, that we have access as individuals to the highest gifts that God has to offer. That's the message of the farmer. We have access. It is there. The promise exists. Do we know how to deal with that promise is the question mm. of today. Can we, can we grasp it? I'm fascinated by the immense effort of the Apollo, the Apollo program of the 60s, which mm -hmm. still believe is deeply underrated culturally because of the prejudice against the United States and the fact that it was a child of the Cold War. It was a child of the Cold War, but my God, what a brilliant child. <laughs> yeah. It did something that people, my, my, you know, one's children's generation, probably do, some of them don't even believe happened because they don't see it happening anymore. Yeah. Because it doesn't happen now, they think it didn't happen. But it is a symbol of all this you've been talking about, stretching out, reaching to broaden the horizon, to find the truth. Uh, it's a human story. Yeah, man, man is in a much more critical condition than he imagines. One of the great drugs of the Western world and probably East today is this notion of universal progress. This is this is the great fiction. Mm. It's nice to think we're heading for an apocalypse of, of truth, but nothing in history prior to ourselves suggests that that, that this is inevitable. Mm. And I think the the Rosicrucian story, as I tell it, proves that they really did think they were on the verge of the, the, the new age, the golden age. They did. 
there are aspects of the vision of the Rosicrucians which are true. We have had this amazing outpouring of technical scientific knowledge. There's no question that the world in the last 500 years changed more than the world in the previous 5,000. But it may be that something in that process has been lost. Is lost, yeah. And that is why we're still fascinated. When Christian Rosenkreuz goes to the East to find this secret, he knows it's an ancient secret. It's not a technological one. It's not something governments were in search of. It was something that the soul needs. You're such a philosopher, Tobias. <laughs> this has been a spiritual experience, actually. <laughs> Delighted to hear it. <laughs> yeah, but do your books uh, on this contain this spiritual aspect, this spiritual understanding of it that you're pushing, as much as it also focuses on the history? I like to think so, because I've heard people have said that they've had spiritual experiences reading my books, Wonderful. and good ones I've had, yeah. good, good experiences, but it has woken up. Yeah, I love this perspective. But the history must be truthfully presented. Of course, of course. I must tell you, Alvin, I always work on my own, on my own research basis. I never... Uh, I don't go to other people and say, tell me the story and I'll translate it. I always do my own basis. I think it's the only way. Yeah, you're a primary researcher. Yeah, I'm happy you came on. Hey, before we part, uh, who's the, you talking about Bond? Who's the original Agent 007? Oh, John D, of course. <laughs> <laughs> if only they did that. Wouldn't it be great to have a Bond film that was more informed by that conception? It would be quite oh. an extraordinary movie, wouldn't it? Yeah. Can you imagine a spiritual bond for goodness sake? I can, I can, especially. Barbara Broccoli would... Especially now, after yeah. this talk. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's terrible that when you watch a Bond film now, it's it's, it's an almost entire... It's, it's an orgy of destruction. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A technological orgy. Yes. I, I mean, I like them, and I enjoyed the last film, and I have seen it. Um, yeah. But I don't think that uh, Spectre is near. Is, I think the original Spectre was really evil. And I think the mm. current guy is just a demented guy with psychological problems. And that's not what it's about. <laughs> you know? I, I, I thought they were referring to Martin Bormann's uh, post Nazi network. But uh, I haven't seen the new one, so oh, I don't you haven't know. seen the new one. Oh well, no. they, they can't judge it then. So, but uh, I will. I, I will. was a bit. I was. I'm not one of the delighted. <laughs> but I, I know. I mean, a lot of good things. But, but I kind of like Daniel Craig. He's kind of. A, he has this anti-hero strike to him that you didn't see in Roger Moore and those guys. That's right. I mean, we lived in a more comfortable world with Roger, didn't we? I mean, <laughs> mm. I, obviously, Daniel Craig's much more the the apocalyptic uh, yeah. hero. Post, uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, the London is presented almost as if the bomb dropped, you know. <laughs> yeah. But maybe they're prophetic in this. I don't know. But um, oh, uh, I, I won't say from your mouth to God's ear on that one. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> we must keep hoping. We must. It's been great to talk. It has. You're much more of a mystic than I imagined uh, before this interview, but that just adds uh, layers that's uh, preferred here. I'm going to twist your arm to get you back on a take on the sacred sexuality, that's for sure. Great. Well, do mm. read the book first. <laughs> yes, yes, I'll try. I'll try. It does help. 
I didn't want to read it. I it came out and I wrote it uh, over a year ago, and uh, I didn't want to look at it. And only now I'm, I've had a look at it recently, and I'm I'm not ashamed. Yeah, it's not too bad. How is it to read your your own books? Oh uh, God, when I finish them, I never want to see them again. <laughs> I have a feeling, yeah, God, it's horrible. I never get any satisfaction. When I'm doing them, I'm going places. And the moment it stops, I almost feel ashamed a lot of the time. That I don't know why. I just I don't get pleasure from them. I, if somebody comes to me and says, that really meant something to me, I'm, I love it to hear it because I can then see it through their eyes. But, no, I always exhaust myself on a book and I've got nothing left to do with it. It's, it's like it's gone. Uh, Not like uh, Dame um, Frances um, Yates, the way she looked at her books as children. <laughs> no, that, to me, they, they they all run away from home. <laughs> <laughs> And they don't write to me. You know. <laughs> But, okay, the important thing is that we, uh, the public, love your bastards then. Uh, oh, I like it. I like it. Good, good way. Yeah. Yeah, they do have a parent, you know. I am a loving parent. I gave them everything I got, you know. Uh, Exactly. They just, <laughs> that's, they just they just want to run away from me. <laughs> that's more than we can say about most parents. So uh, uh, yeah. you're trying to use what they know to the best of advantage. You know, bon, you know that phrase in French, bon foi. Do you work in good faith? Sometimes in life, you can't always work in good faith. Some people make a profession of not working in good faith. I can can stand up and say I've always worked in good faith because my attitude is fundamentally careless. I'm not trying to build a, a reputation. It's come eventually, at my great age, has come to me. I certainly never worked it. I, in fact, I did everything I could to be to be kept out, out of a kind of. Uh, Spiritual conceit, maybe mm -hmm. I don't yeah, know. Well, that's the important thing, isn't it? That you can live with yourself and uh, die uh, with yourself, so to speak. <laughs> that's always been an important thing yeah, for me. Yeah. <laughs> is, you know, what do you say at the end of the story if you get a chance? Mm. Um, so no, I'm, I'm not trying to build an empire on the stuff. You talk about the invisible. That is the. You want to understand what is meant by the invisible brotherhood. It is the people who are not yeah. celebrated. A philosopher, A yeah. friend of mine mm. used to say, Toby, you know, who do you work for? He said, I said, I work for posterity. I was quite happy with that. <laughs> you could have said you were working for Sophia to personalize it. Yeah, I could have. But I, I said, I'm working, I, well, it was much of Pat's. I work for posterity. So. <laughs> okay. And he used to shake his head and, And sort of think, well, you know, you could have made a million if you'd gone into salesmanship, because he was a salesman, dear friend, dear lovely friend. But there you are. So no, you've got to always look behind the surface of who's doing the work, and that's the only way to judge it: who's doing the work. No, not who's talking about it; who's doing it, mm. and assess it from that. Yeah, that's a point. That's great. Thanks a lot for coming on, uh, Tobias, yes, and sharing, sharing a pouring from your endless uh, insight here. Oh, oh. Any, 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 almost, almost any time. <laughs> this concludes our conversation with Churton for this time, which was based upon his books on the topics touched upon, especially The Golden Builders, Alchemists, Rosicrucians, First Freemasons, and 
The Invisible History of the Rosicrucians, The World's Most Mysterious Secret Society, also called Invisibles, The True History of the Rosicrucians. Now, by the time of the production of this show, it's been three weeks since our last release. The reason is that our equipment failed and broke, so we lost almost our entire database, although the important stuff has been retrieved. What we now need in order to keep releasing shows at the same standard is an upgrade. Our aim is to release new shows once a week, but right now we need to handle even the every second week pace. Also, we want to make videos with contents illustrating the talks, so as to have watchable alternatives to the radio experience. In order to ensure better productions, we need a little crowdfunding for the expenses this entails. So, if you support our work and look forward to more, better and faster, please chip in with whatever you can handle. Don't ruin yourself though, even a dollar helps us out. This especially goes out to all the good folks who's already contributed, since you've proven your support and generosity. It is harder to rely on new people who hasn't bothered to finance us yet. So we need all of our listeners to help lift the production quality onwards. Finally, consider this wisdom. Those who have handled sciences have been either men of experiment or men of dogmas. The men of experiment are like the ant. They only collect and use. The reasoners resemble spiders who make cobwebs out of their own substance. But the bee takes a middle course. It gathers its material from the flowers of the garden and of the field, but transforms and digests it by a power of its own. Not unlike this is the true business of philosophy for it neither relies solely or chiefly on the powers of the mind, nor does it take the matter which it gathers from natural history and mechanical experiments and lay it up in the memory hole as it finds it, but lays it up in the understanding, altered and digested. Therefore, from a closer and purer league between these two faculties, the experimental and the rational, such as has never yet been made, much may be hoped. End of quote. These are the words of Francis Bacon, who was connected to most of the people mentioned in today's program, of which your host has been Al. With the support of the Borealis team, we remain yours sincerely. Be seeing you. number one.